0: Section 13 of History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of Australia and New Zealand from 1696 to 1890 by Alexander and George Sutherland victoria eighteen fifty one to eighteen fifty five one effects of gold excitement for the first few months after the discovery of gold in victoria many shrewd persons believed that the colony would be ruined by its seeming good fortune none of the ordinary industries could be carried on whilst workmen were so scarce and wages so high But happily these expectations proved fallacious for in eighteen fifty two when the great stream of people from europe began to flow into the colony every profession and every trade sprang into new and vigorous life the vast crowds on the goldfields required to be fed so the farmers found ample market for their corn and the squatters for their beef and mutton the miners required to be clothed and the tailor and shoemaker must be had whatever might be the prices they charged mechanics and artisans of every class found their labors in demand and handsomely paid for the merchants also found trade both brisk and lucrative while the imports in eighteen fifty were worth only three-quarters of a million those of three years later were worth about twenty times that amount after this enormous increase in population and business it was found that there was quite as great an opportunity of gaining riches by remaining quietly engaged in one's own occupation as by joining the restless throng upon the gold-fields the public revenue of the colony was in eighteen fifty two six times and in eighteen fifty three twelve times as great as it had been before the discovery of gold so that both as individuals and as a nation the people of victoria had reason to be satisfied with the change two convicts prevention act there existed however one drawback for the attractions of the gold fields had drawn from the neighbouring colonies and more especially from tasmania great numbers of that class of convicts who having served a part of their time had been liberated on condition of good behavior they crossed over by hundreds and soon gave rise to a serious difficulty for in the confused and unsettled state of the colony they found only too great an opportunity for the display of their criminal propensities and perverted talents being by no means charmed with the toilsome life of the gold miner many of them became bushrangers there were in eighteen fifty two several bands of these lawless ruffians sweeping the country and robbing in all directions as the gold was being conveyed from the diggings escorted by bands of armed troopers the bushrangers lurked upon the road treacherously shot the troopers and rifled the chests on one occasion their daring rose to such a height that a band of them boarded the ship nelson whilst it lay at anchor in hobson's bay overpowered the crew and removed gold to the value of twenty four thousand pounds remarking as they handed the boxes over the side of the vessel that this was the best gold field they had ever seen to prevent any further introduction of these undesirable immigrants the legislature in eighteen fifty two passed what was called the convicts prevention act declaring that no person who had been convicted and had not received an absolutely free pardon should be allowed to enter the colony and that all persons who came from tasmania should be required to prove that they were free before being allowed to land any ship captain who brought a convict into the colony was to be fined one hundred pounds for the offence three aspect of gold fields meanwhile the gold fields were growing apace the discovery of the eureka gravel pits and canadian leads made ballarat once more the favorite and in eighteen fifty three there were about forty thousand diggers at work on the yarrowi hotels began to be built theaters were erected and here and there a little church rose among the long line of tents which occupied the slopes above the creek four scene on the gold fields below on the flats the scene was a busy one. one thousands upon thousands of holes covered the earth where men emerged and disappeared like ants each bearing a bag of sand which he either threw on a wheelbarrow or slung over his shoulder and then carried forward running nimbly along the thin paths among a multitude of holes till he reached the little creek where he delivered the sand to one of the men who stood shoulder to shoulder in long rows for miles on either bank all washing the sand and clay into the shallow current whose waters were turned to a tint of dirty yellow such is the scene which presents itself by day but at sunset a gun is fired from the commissioner's tent and all cease work then against the evening sky ten thousand fires send up their wreaths of thin blue smoke and the diggers prepare their evening meals everything is hushed for a time except that a dull murmur rises from the little crowds chatting over their pannikins of tea but as the darkness draws closer around the noises begin to assume a merrier tone and mingling pleasantly in the evening air there rise the loud notes of a sailor's song the merry jingle of a french political chant or the rich strains of a german chorus in some tents the miners sit round boxes or stools while by the light of flaming oil cans they gamble for match-boxes filled with gold dust in others they gather to drink the liquors illicitly sold by the sly drog-shops many of the diggers betake themselves to the brilliantly lighted theatres and make the fragile walls tremble with their rough and hearty roars of applause everywhere are heard the sounds of laughter and good humour then at midnight all to bed except those foolish revellers who have stayed too late at the grog shop at dawn again they are all astir for the day's supply of water must be drawn from the stream ere its limpid current begins to assume the appearance of a clay-stained gutter making the allowances proper to the occasion the community is both orderly and law-abiding and the digger in the midst of all his toil enjoys a very agreeable existence five the license fee he had but one grievance to trouble his life and that was the monthly payment of the license fee this tax had been imposed under the erroneous impression that every one who went upon the gold fields must of necessity earn a fortune for a long time this mistake prevailed because only the most successful diggers were much heard of but there was an indistinguishable throng of those who earned much less than a laborer's wage the average monthly earnings throughout the colony were not more than 8 pounds for each man and of this sum he had to pay 30 shillings every month for the mere permission to dig to those who were fortunate this seemed but a trifle but for those who earned little or nothing there was no resource but to evade payment and many were the tricks adopted in order to dodge the commissioners as there were more than one-fifth of the total number of diggers who systematically paid no fees it was customary for the police to stop any man they met and demand to see his license if he had none he was at once marched off to the place that served for a jail and there chained to a tree the police were in the habit of devoting two days a week to what was called digger hunting and as they often experienced much trouble and vexation in doing what was unfortunately their duty they were sometimes rough and summary in their proceedings hence arose a feeling of hostility among the diggers not only to the police But to all the officials on the goldfields. The first serious ebullition of the prevailing discontent took place on the ovens, where a commissioner who had been unnecessarily rough to unlicensed diggers was assaulted and severely injured. But as violence was deprecated by the great body of miners, they held large meetings in order to agitate in a more constitutional manner for the abolition of the fee. At first, they sent a petition to Governor Latrobe, who declined to make any change. It was then hinted that possibly they might be driven to use force, and the Governor replied that if they did, he was determined to do his duty. But in August 1853, when the agitation was increasing, Latrobe hurriedly reduced the fee to twenty shillings per month. This appeased the miners for a time, but the precipitancy with which the governor had changed his intention showed too plainly the weakness of the government. For there was at that time scarcely a soldier in Victoria to repress an insurrection, if one should break out. Among the confused crowds on the goldfields, there were numbers of troublesome spirits, many of them foreigners, who were only too happy to foment dissension thousands of miners had been disappointed in their hopes of wealth and being in a discontented frame of mind they blamed the governor for their misfortunes in spite of the concession that had been made to them a spirit of dissatisfaction prevailed throughout all the goldfields mutterings were heard as of a coming storm and la trobe in alarm sent to all the neighboring colonies to ask for troops as the 99th Regiment was lying idle in Hobart Town, it was at once dispatched to Melbourne. 6. Governor Hotham. While matters were in this state, Governor Latrobe retired from office, and in June 1854, Sir Charles Hotham arrived to fill the position. On his first arrival, he showed that his sympathies were to a great extent with the diggers but he could scarcely be expected to make any important change until he had been a few months in the colony and had learnt exactly the state of affairs and meanwhile the discontent on the gold-fields was daily increasing the months of september and october in eighteen fifty four were exceedingly dry the creeks were greatly shrunk in volume and in many places the diggers could find no water either for drinking or for gold-washing and their irritation was not at all soothed by the manners of the commissioners and police besides this the government had thought it necessary to form a camp on the gold-fields so that a large body of soldiers dwelt constantly in the midst of the miners the soldiers and officers of course supported the commissioners and like them soon came to be regarded with the greatest disfavor the goldfield population was in this irritable state when a trifling incident kindled revolt seven riot at ballarat a digger named scoby late one evening knocked at the door of bentley's hotel at ballarat finding the place closed for the night he tried to force an entrance and continued his clamor so long that bentley became angry and sallied forth to chastise him a crowd gathered to see the fight and in the darkness scoby's head was split open with a spade whose hand it was that aimed the blow no one could tell but the diggers universally believed that bentley was himself the murderer he was therefore arrested and tried but acquitted by mr dews the magistrate who was said by the diggers to be secretly his partner in business a great crowd assembled round the hotel and a digger named kennedy addressed the multitude in vigorous scottish accents pointing out the spot where their companion's blood had been shed and asserting that his spirit hovered above and called for revenge the authorities sent a few police to protect the place but they were only a handful of men in the midst of a great and seething crowd of over eight thousand powerful diggers for an hour or two the mob though indulging in occasional banter remained harmless but a mischievous boy having thrown a stone and broken the lamp in front of the hotel the police made a movement as if they were about to seize the offender this roused the diggers to anger and in less than a minute every pane of glass was broken the police were roughly jostled and cut by showers of stones and the doors were broken open the crowd burst tumultuously into the hotel and the rooms were soon swarming with men drinking the liquors and searching for bentley who, however, had already escaped on a swift horse to the camp. As the noise and disorder increased, a man placed a handful of paper and rags against the wooden walls of the bowling alley, deliberately struck a match, and set fire to the place. The diggers now deserted the hotel, and retired to a safe distance in order to watch the conflagration. Meanwhile, a company of soldiers had set out from the camp for the scene of the riot, and on their approach the crowd quietly dispersed. But by this time the hotel was reduced to a heap of smouldering ruins. 8. CONVICTION OF RIOTERS For this outrage, three men were apprehended and taken to Melbourne, where they were tried and sentenced to imprisonment but bentley was also rearrested and tried and as his friend dews could on this occasion be of no assistance to him he was sentenced to three years of hard labour on the roads dews was dismissed from the magistracy and sir charles Hotham did everything in his power to conciliate the diggers they were not to be thus satisfied however and held a stormy meeting at ballarat in which they appointed a deputation consisting of kennedy Humphrey, and black to demand from the governor the release of the three men condemned for burning bentley's hotel hotham received them kindly but declined to accept their message because he said the word demand was not a suitable term to use in addressing the representative of her majesty as the diggers were haughty and refused to alter the phrase the governor intimated that under these circumstances no reply could be given the delegates having returned to ballarat a great meeting was held and kennedy humphrey black laller and verne made inflammatory speeches in which they persuaded the diggers to pass a resolution declaring they would all burn their licenses and pay no more fees nine insurrection at ballarat skirmishes between the soldiers and diggers now became frequent and on the thirtieth of november when the last digger hunt took place the police and soldiers were roughly beaten off the diggers among their tents set up a flagstaff and hoisted a banner of blue with four silver stars in the corner then the leaders knelt beneath it and having sworn to defend one another to the death proceeded to enroll the miners and form them into squads ready for drilling meantime the military camp was being rapidly fortified with trusses of hay bags of corn and loads of firewood the soldiers were in hourly expectation of an attack and for four successive nights they slept fully accoutred and with their loaded muskets beside them all night long lights were seen to move busily backwards and forwards among the diggers tents and the solid tread of great bodies of men could be heard amid the darkness lalor was marshalling his forces on the slopes of ballarat and drilling them to use such arms as they possessed whether rifles or pistols or merely spikes fastened at the ends of poles Ten, the eureka stockade sir charles hawtham now sent up the remaining eight hundred soldiers of the ninety ninth regiment under sir robert nicholl and to these he added all the marines from the men-of-war and nearly all the police of the colony they were several days on the march and only arrived when the disturbance was over the diggers had formed an entrenchment called the eureka stockade and had enclosed about an acre of ground with a high slab fence in the midst of this stronghold they proclaimed the republic of victoria and here they were able to carry on their drilling unmolested under the command of the two leaders verne a german and peter lalor the son of an irish gentleman they sent out parties in every direction to gather all the arms and ammunition they could obtain and made extensive preparations for an assault but imagining that the soldiers would never dream of attacking them until the arrival of sir robert Nicholl, they kept guard but carelessly captain thomas who commanded the troops in the camp determined to finish the affair by a sudden attack and on saturday night whilst the diggers were amusing themselves in fancied security he was carefully making his preparations on sunday morning just after daybreak when the stockade contained only two hundred men captain thomas led his troops quietly forth and succeeded in approaching within three hundred yards of the stockade without being observed the alarm was then given within the insurgents rushed to their posts and poured a heavy volley upon the advancing soldiers of whom about twelve fell the attacking party wavered a moment but again became steady and fired with so calm and correct an aim that whenever a digger showed himself even for a moment, he was shot. Peter Lalor rose on a sand heap within the stockade to direct his men, but immediately fell, pierced in the shoulder by a musket ball. After the firing had lasted for twenty minutes, there was a lull, and the insurgents could hear the order CHARGE ring out clearly. Then there was an ominous rushing sound the soldiers were for a moment seen above the palisades and immediately the conflict became hand to hand the diggers took refuge in the empty claims where some were bayoneted and others captured whilst the victors set fire to the tents and soon afterwards retired with one hundred twenty-five prisoners a number of half-burnt palisades which had fallen on lallor concealed him from view, and after the departure of the soldiers, he crawled forth and escaped to the ranges, where a doctor was found who amputated his arm. The government subsequently offered a reward of five hundred pounds for his capture, but his friends proved true and preserved him till the trouble was all past. The number of those who had been wounded was never exactly known, but it was found that twenty-six of the insurgents had died during the fight or shortly afterwards and in the evening the soldiers returned and buried such of the dead bodies as were still lying within the stockade on the following day four soldiers who had been killed in the engagement were buried with military honors many of the wounded died during the course of the following month and in particular the colony had to lament the loss of captain wise of the fortieth regiment who had received his death wound in the conflict eleven trial of the rioters when the news of the struggle and its issue was brought to melbourne the sympathies of the people were powerfully roused in favour of the diggers a meeting attended by about five thousand persons was held near prince's bridge and a motion proposed by mr david blair in favor of the diggers was carried almost unanimously similar meetings were held at geelong and sandhurst so that there could be no doubt as to the general feeling against the government and when at the beginning of eighteen fifty five thirteen of the prisoners were brought up for trial in melbourne and each in his turn was acquitted crowds of people both within and without the courts greeted them one after another with hearty cheers as they stepped out into the open air once more free men twelve improvements on the goldfields the commission appointed by sir charles hotham commenced its labours shortly after the conclusion of the riot and in its report the fact was clearly demonstrated that the miners had suffered certain grievances acting upon the advice of this commission the legislative council abolished the monthly fee and authorized the issue of miners rights giving to the holders on payment of one pound each per annum permission to dig for gold in any part of the colony new members were to be elected to the council in order to watch over the interests of the miners two to represent sandhurst two for ballarat two for castlemaine and one each for the ovens and the avoca diggings any man who held a miner's right was thereby qualified to vote in the elections for the council these were very just and desirable reforms and the government added to the general satisfaction by appointing the most prominent of the diggers To be justices of the peace on the goldfields. Thus the colony very rapidly returned to its former state of peaceful progress, and the goldfields were soon distinguished for their orderly and industrious appearance. End of section thirteen. Recording by Linda Johnson.